Welcome to the podcast of MotorWeek, television's original automotive magazine. MotorWeek is made possible by Cars.com. Here's your MotorWeek podcast host, John Davis. Well, hello and welcome everyone to the 26th podcast of MotorWeek. I'm John Davis. Glad to have you with us and joining me in Studio C today are our reporter, Stephen Chupnick, and you probably know him from watching our Over the Edge uh, segments. Go ahead, Stephen. Say hello. Hello. And a little, a little bit louder, Stephen. Hello. Let everybody know you're yes. here. Our associate producer and all-around car guy, Ben Davis, is joining us again. Let's get it on. Okay. And we've got our lightning round today, as well as diving once again into the MotorWeek mailbag. Okay. First car up for discussion today is the 2010 Honda Cross Tour. Now, this is a vehicle that we've not had here at our shop yet, but I have driven it, and I did have a chance to go to the preview. So let me sort of fill everybody in. I know that you you two have seen pictures of it. When this car was first shown to the public a few weeks ago, Honda did the very unusual thing of of showing photographs, and everybody said, okay, it's another one of these five-door, coupe-like roof uh, uh, car-slash-crossovers. But the thing that got everybody is it looked very un-Honda-like, and in a word, it was pretty ugly. And a lot of the blogs on the Internet said so. I have to tell you, in person, it looks much, much better. There is a very blunt grill at the front. Even though it wears the name Accord, it doesn't look anything quite like an Accord. It's much more adventuresome in styling, which is unusual for Honda. They usually don't get uh, do things that are polarizing, although you could argue that the element was that way. But it looks different, and indeed... It is the new flagship for the Accord line. It looks taller. It looks a little longer. It looks beefier. And, of course, with the coupe-like styling, uh, it looks uh, much slicker than the sedan. Uh, It's not nearly as slick as the coupe still, but it still looks pretty slick. So here you've got this five-door with a big glass hatch in the back, and the glass continues down uh, below the cut line, much like an Insight. You open it up, it's got a lot of room on the inside. It's got very good adult seating in the back seat. However, that coupish roof, once again, makes it very tough for adults to get in back there. Uh, it's a, it's, I don't think it's quite as good as the X6, which is a vehicle we've had in our long-term fleet lately. But uh, fine for children. Um, They're aiming at an older clientele, empty nesters, as well as a very young clientele that might be looking for a big family car, but the kids are still growing. Uh, Because it's a premium model, the lowest trim level is EX, which is one of Honda's premium trims. It is not available in a four-cylinder, largely because it's quite a bit heavier than the regular Accord. Uh, So it's six-cylinder, three-and-a-half liters. And, you know, they think they're going to sell about 40000 which makes it sort of a niche vehicle. And they called it an Accord, so it would get that Accord rub off. And so since you guys haven't had that much experience with this car, my question to you is, do you think that this five-door crossover slash swoopy coupe is really something that buyers are going to go for? We're seeing a lot of entries. Or is this just a clever way of redefining what a hatchback is and getting people to accept it? I think the key will be to see what the Honda does, because, in fact, if it does catch on and people are out there and they like the shape, but they're traditionally Honda buyers, then this might be the thing that they've waited for. We'll have to see how this one catches on itself. So you think it it could appeal but primarily to people that are already in the Honda fold? Exactly. Which is probably your, what they intended. X6 shape kind of lover. 
um, and, and they're just they're just not maybe adventuresome enough to buy a BMW per se or have enough money. Right. Well, and that's exactly what we were talking about the other day when my cousin was you know was asking me all about the cross tour, and I said you know it, it's an Accord. It, you know, it's a Honda, it's a good car, but I think the price really is out of some of yeah. you know, my age, which is around the, the 30-ish age, you know, it, for it's a, young It's a young 35, family. I mean, if you get it nicely equipped, say with leather and nav, it's, you know, $37,000, 35, 37 grand. So it's, it's not cheap. Yeah. Um, Toyota Venza is its main competitor. Uh, Venza's built on a truck chassis, where the Accord Crosstour is built on a Honda Accord car chassis. Uh, Venza's a little bit bigger on the inside, but it doesn't handle as nice. Do you, I'm sure you remember the Venza. Um, that is a perfect example of what we're talking about. Good vehicle, makes sense to buy one. I liked it. Um, I thought that that over... This this cross tour, obviously, I haven't driven it, but from what everything that I've heard about it, I would get the Venza. One reason is it seems like a comparable car, and it's less money. It's a little less money, and it tows a little more, but of course, it doesn't handle. I will it's, say the Accord handles well. It's a little more soccer momish too, if you will, maybe the Venza, where the uh, where the, the cross tour looks a little more activity oriented. Yeah, I think that's accurate. Yeah, I mean, I'm, maybe there's enough market for everybody to have one of these. Uh, I mean, the domestics haven't really fielded much in this area. They've been sticking pretty much with the tried and true things like the um, uh, the new uh, GMC Equator, uh, Terrain rather, and the um, um, Chevrolets and Fords and so forth that are in the more typical crossover uh, venue. Well, we'll see. Anyway, the Honda Cross Tour going on sale in November. Uh, interesting vehicle. Uh, premium price for an Accord. Very different. Uh, somewhat polarizing. I'm glad to see Honda getting adventuresome. Uh, speaking of adventuresome styling, Cadillac SRX. This is their second effort at doing a uh, crossover. The first one was a midsize uh, back in the first half of uh, this decade. Now we've got the 2010, a little bit smaller, more like a large compact. Should dispel um, common uh, misconceptions here. This is not... Uh, a version of the Chevrolet Equinox. Uh, it's not based on the Opal chassis. Uh, Cadillac's very adamant that this is a standalone vehicle. Uh, it is going after the Lexus RX. It has their edgy uh, art and science uh, exterior, a beautifully done interior. Two engines, a 3-liter V6 and a uh, 2.8 uh, turbo V6. Uh, comments, uh, looks really great, drives nice. think it might be a hit this time. Yeah, I, I think so, too. It's funny you said edgy all around because uh, inside is quite edgy as well. The dash, mm -hmm. uh, it, it is well done inside. Every, it's beautiful. Everything has its own shape, and they all uh, blend harmoniously, but very angular. Now, we criticize a lot of vehicles for having a lot of controls in the center stack, especially uh, like Acuras. There's quite a few on this vehicle, but did you find them very confusing? You've spent more time in it than I have. I'm a little jaded because uh, earlier this week, I've been in the uh, S400 uh, and I jumped right out of the S400 Mercedes into this, so it seemed uh, it seemed more, much more manageable. But like I said, <laughs> I, I, you know, there's this this thing where sophistication 
uh, is being interpreted uh, as the more buttons you can have. I thought we were getting away from that. Uh, have you had a chance to drive it, Stephen? I drove it from our parking lot to our office door. Well, um, that's almost a commute. <laughs> and <laughs> it's a little, little less. A little you. less, yeah. And you know, I mean, it's a Cadillac. How did it feel to you? It felt nice. I mean, I wasn't driving it for actual driving use, mm-hmm. but it's. It's it to me. It feels like it's a heavier car. It's it's what a Cadillac is supposed it, it to is be. It is heavy, and the and the base three liter engine I think is a little strains a little bit. The the turbo two eight seems much more uh, suited to it. Um, I love the interior. I can't say enough about it. It's an absolutely beautiful machine, and one of the most uh, stunning to look at interiors of any crossover of any vehicle out there right there on the market. I saw one actually on the street today, and it's always good to see these things coming down the road at you. And it made you made you stop and really look at it. I mean, if you can imagine a shrunken Escalade uh, with a bit more uh, uh, style to it. So interesting. Cadillac SRX, second time around, second generation. Uh, I think it's going to be a lot more successful than the first one. 2010 Nissan 370Z Roadster. Boy, you know, if it had gotten here in July instead of October, yeah. it would have been a lot more fun. Yeah. Okay, Ben, you spent more time in it than either. Yeah, uh, I'm a big Roadster guy, too, and yeah. uh, growing up with Miatas. Um Getting in this car, everything feels right the first time. It's not a car that you have to get in and get used to and eventually uh, grow a liking for it just grabs you and shakes you and it's everything you want it to be the steering is perfect if the the handling is crisp it just feels just feels everything just mm. vibrates power through you you know it's interesting they're they're aiming this at an, an older clientele because it's more expensive than the coupe as you might expect so they're where they in their press material they show a 20 a something driving the coupe and more like a early 40 something driving the convertible and so they're they're targeting a little more genteel but as we say in our report on this vehicle you, you don't give up anything this is a hard charging sports car absolutely if it had a Porsche badge on it uh, I don't think anybody would question it and folks that are looking at this car and thinking well can we go up against a, a, a Z4 is this really a um, a Porsche uh, challenger um, my answer is uh, drive it I think you'd be absolutely, absolutely. knocked out by it absolutely have anything to add, Stephen? I actually didn't have a chance uh, when it was out. Uh, when it was here, I was actually out of the office, so I didn't have a chance to to get in. I, I you were out driving over the edge and something else. I was. <laughs> it's always have excuses. No. It's definitely stunning, but it is a stunning looking car. And the top now is hydraulically operated instead of electric, so it operates smoother. Uh, they've gone to a fabric top versus a canvas top. It's got, still got a glass rear window. The shape of the top mimics the coupe nicely. Uh, that, that thing repels water like crazy, too. Put a hose on that, it, uh, it was beaten up like a freshly Which waxed Which is a good paint. thing for a convertible. It was wild. Very, very interesting car. Three interesting vehicles we talked about this week. All three of them sort of break the mold from what we were expecting. Stephen, in all fairness to you, you were off doing uh, a segment on a, a very unusual uh, vehicle because we're Motor Week. In the past, we've anything that's got a motor has been fair game. And you were, of all things, snowmobiling. So tell us about it. I was. Uh, I was lucky enough to be invited up to Montreal and Quebec City uh, for the 50th anniversary of Ski-Doo uh, from Bombardier Recreational Products. And it was my second or third time uh, on a snowmobile. And 
I have to say is driving or riding up in Canada, they have trails that the the sights and the the it just the feel of it was just awesome. Now, for for folks that have never driven, uh, ridden a snowmobile, what's it like compared to even a motorcycle? Um, you know, you actually feel like you're on the road, like you're driving a regular car. It has nothing. Really? If, if you've ever ridden a jet ski or, yeah. or a Sea-Doo or any kind of personal watercraft, uh, uh, sitting down, not standing, but sitting down, that's what it's like, but on snow. Um, a little bit more bumpy, um, but you can go as fast as probably 100 miles an hour and not even realize it. I spent a lot of time up in Vermont, wow. and to see the people on those, I mean, I mean they, they're a lot of fun. But they're doing a lot with snowmobiles to make them uh, blend better with the environment, aren't they? Yeah, BRP, uh, as I said, they make Sea-Doo, they make uh, the Can-Am Spider uh, three-wheeler. And they're really technology-driven, um, and they really get into the fuel economy. They get into the en- environmental aspect of it. To the emissions. And, and they're cleaning up their, their engines and their gas. And, and they're doing it ahead of any mandates. And, and anybody. They, yeah. There's no real laws Mm-hmm. Excuse me. On on this stuff, but they're coming. But they're coming, and they've been ahead of this for ten years now. Had and a great time, didn't you? I had an awesome time. Uh, folks that don't are in this country in the U.S. that are not familiar with Bombardier, and our Canadian uh, listeners and viewers certainly know they are the largest industrial uh, concern in Canada. Make just about everything from uh, jet airplanes to to trains and and and, uh, and all these personal vehicles like um, ski do and um, personal watercrafts and the I mean they're an amazingly diverse company thanks Stephen very much okay let's move on now to our motor week lightning round now um, Michelle Parker our producer sitting over there with the magic bell and she's gonna basically cut us off after two minutes here is what we're going to talk about despite a tough economy and fluctuating gas prices. Muscle cars like the Camaro, the Mustang, the Challenger are making a comeback. Why and which new model truly lives up to its iconic heritage? And Ben, I'm going to let you go first. I think they all do. Uh, I think to each one, for each one, uh, there's there's a fan out there that thinks it's living 100% up to its iconic heritage. Uh, it's been interesting to watch you and and other members of the staff, including Stephen, who are younger than I am and who didn't live through the first muscle car time, look at these cars. And I know you didn't like the Camaro because it didn't have a lot of glass, felt claustrophobic. Yeah, that's true. And uh, it took me a while to warm up on the interior, too. But even though I had those problems, you can't deny that it's 100% iconic. Yeah, I mean, you look at the 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 Dodge, and it's just like, okay, it, the Challenger reminds me of big, wide, fast, Hemi-powered Dodges of the <laughs> 60s. I mean, they did a wonderful job yeah, uh, even the, recreating. They, they still carried over the trapezoidal armrest inlays on the door yeah. panels on that. They did a great job on that car. And Mustang now, in the, its newest version, in its second uh, generation, they've sharpened that up a lot, too. I don't think I have a favor. I, I guess if it was my money and I was going to put it down, I'd probably buy the Camaro, but I'd, the, the Mustang pulls at me, too, because I've, I've uh, owned a lot of them. I'd buy the Mustang, and I'd race you every weekend yeah, if you wanted to. Yeah, it would to. be fun to do. 
it. And we just did the uh, the uh, ZL575 from SLP Performance Parts, which kicked it up another 100 horsepower. That was a beautiful car, too. Stephen, you had a time to get in the Camaro. Yeah, I, I'm, I mean, the, the Camaro, we've had, a, you know, we've had a few in, and... I, the Camaros to me are always like Ben said. I think they're all iconic in its own way. So, and that you got the last word. Very good. Now let's move on to our Motor Week mailbag. And I've got to admit that just before we started taping today, I actually had to break down and call our car care guru Pat Goss to get his two cents on this because this is one that's a very very tricky question. All right, here he is. Here we go. This is from Mike uh, in Pennsylvania. A colleague had an unrepairable flat tire on her 2004 Subaru Outback that had about 25 to 30,000 miles on the tires on the car. She was told that all four tires had to be replaced and that she could not just change two on the same axle, which you can do when you've got just a front or a rear drive vehicle. Could you explain why you have to replace all four tires on a Subaru? Is it true of all all-wheel drives? Okay, here's what's going on. Most modern all-wheel drive vehicles have some kind of a center differential at a minimum that is electronically controlled. It is either viscous-filled or it has clutches. It can be both. And how much power is, is directed to the front or rear axle depends on rotational differences among the tires. If you have two tires on the front that have brand new tread and two tires on the back that have half the tread, it's going to screw up the system. The electronics won't understand the differentiation. You may be getting power to the wrong axle at the wrong time, and you can possibly burn up the very expensive expensive all-wheel drive center differential. So the general rule of thumb, according to Pat Goss, is that the tires that remain on the car that are good can't be worn down more than 10 to 15 percent, and it, it is different for different vehicles, than the new tires you're going to put on. So they've got to have no more, no less. They, can, they have to have 85 to 90 percent of their original tread if you're going to put on just one new tire or you run the risk of very expensive damage. Uh, on the other hand, if you've been very easy on the car and the other tires that don't need replacing uh, are almost like new and you can check it with a tread depth indicator and they're only slightly worn, you're okay just putting one tire on. But in most cases, with twenty-five to 30,000 miles, you've probably worn down at least some of the tires about halfway. And if you have one bad one, you've got to replace all four. So that's a very expensive thing that no one ever talks about when getting all-wheel drive. Great question. Yeah, it was a very, very good question. And, Mike, because of that, we're going to make sure we send you a little something for Motor Week, one of our Motor Week T-shirts. And that pretty much wraps up our Motor Week podcast number 26. I want to thank uh, Stephen Chupnick and Ben Davis for joining me in the studio today, our audio engineer, Jim Bigwood, our producer um, and create well, our creator, Bob Mixter, who's not here, and our able producer, Michelle Parker, on the bell, who's, there you go, ring the bell. And uh, thank you all for joining us. Be sure to listen to our next Motor Week podcast here at Motor Week Online and catch Motor Week on all your local public television stations. I'm John Davis. We'll talk to you soon. You have been listening to the podcast of Motor Week, television's original automotive magazine. Motor Week is made possible by Cars.com. For additional information on podcasts, videos, and showtimes, 
visit our website at motorweek.org. And watch MotorWeek, television's longest-running automotive magazine series, each week on your local PBS station.